Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling, award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you because Reed is definitely his own man with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy, listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada, and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Well, today, we're going to cover, I think it's quite apropos, don't you, the history of the Federal Reserve. Last week, we covered the history of banking around the world and in the United States of America. If you didn't listen to that show, you should, particularly with what's, shall we say, going on around this place. On the rightsideradio.com. And then we're going to do a whole bunch of rat-a-tat-tat, and I got it divided into various segments for you. Some COVID stuff I've been wanting to bring you for a couple weeks. That's really important. Some woke stuff. You know, ESG, etc. You need to understand this. You need to see how pervasive it is. And then we're going to bring you, if we have time, a little of what's coming down on the, the Biden corrupt bumbles. You know, the constant denials of taking money from China and now how it's all coming out. I don't know what will go with it. I don't know where it will go, but it's all coming out. And there'll be some other rat-a-tat-tat too, if we have time. So let's get started. First of all, our founder's quote. Again, John Adams. The jaws of power are always open to devour, and her arm is always stretched out, if possible, to destroy the freedom of thinking, speaking, and writing. Well, we've seen a little bit of that over the last few years, haven't we? Yes, we have. And the rant story. You know, a short one today. I am a firm believer that you can pick the actual day that a season turns. I mean, if you are kind of in tune with the land, in tune with the energies of the earth, you can feel the difference. You know that day. And listen, if it's fall, you'll have warm days following. And if it's summer, you'll have cold days following. And if you have winter, etc., But the other day, I walked out, I think it was two days ago, and it was early morning, sun was rising, beautiful scene, patchy snow where the drifts are lingering out on the fields, and the air felt different. It had a different texture, a different sense, a different feel. And that, folks, was the first day of spring here in Wyoming. Regardless of whether we get our snow showers and dumps and little bits of frigid blast from here on in, it is now spring. Happy spring to us all. Now let's talk about our Federal Reserve and then the rest of the story. So they've been around 100 years, our Fed has, founded by an act of Congress in 1913. The original goals of establishing the Federal Reserve was to make the American banking system more stable, to get rid of the banking panics, which I told you about last week, which had led up to this. And it's important to know that when it was formed and now, the Fed is not government-owned, even though it plays a close association with the Treasury and supposedly follows government restrictions and guidelines, it is privately owned, folks. One of the things economists back then felt that caused all these panics and bank runs, etc., in the 1800s and leading up to the formation of the Fed was that we had an inelastic currency. Remember that word, because we're going to use it several times here. The National Banking Acts I told you about last week of the 1860s, they kind of created a environment, if you will, in which most of the nation's currency consisted of notes that were issued by national banks. In other words, every bank had its own banknotes. And the banknotes back then had to be backed by U.S. government bonds. But you couldn't print any more 
because you really didn't have a printing press. So the amount of money in the system was limited. That's that inelasticity, so to speak. And the desire to create an elastic currency, oh, gee, hasn't that worked that well? That was ultimately realized by the creation of the Fed and a new form of currency that would be nationwide, not just bank to bank to bank to bank, the Federal Reserve Note. If you look in your pocket right now, that's what it says at the top, the Federal Reserve Note. Remember, last week I told you that before the Civil War, most banks were chartered by the states, except for two banks that were chartered by the federal government, the BUSs. And, you know, as politics change and as shifts in power change in Washington, just like today, folks, you know, history is a teacher, certain folks like Alexander Hamilton really wanted the federal government to be more powerful, the federal banking system to be more powerful than others who were more for state rights and didn't like federal power, like Andrew Jackson didn't like it at all. The result was that both of the BUSs, the national banks, went away. They weren't renewed. And then we had the Banking Act of 1863, and they could issue charters, they, being the federal government, could issue charters and supervise the quote-unquote national banks. And under that system, banks that were chartered, mostly by state governments, were never permitted to branch into other states. Of course, that put them at a disadvantage because the national bank could have as many branches as it wanted in as many states as it could possibly build them. The result was that the U.S. banking system, to get around these laws, because you know that's what happens, turned into a system of thousands of these tiny banks. And they may have the same owners, but they had a different name, they had a different charter, and many of them, thousands of them, were in one room, literally one room, in towns hither, yither, and yon. But that meant that these all these little one-room banks scattered around the country could never reach like an efficient size or be able to really diversify their loan portfolios. And what you saw was the interests of large city banks against those of banks in smaller towns and rural areas. Well, gee, where have we seen that kind of divide before? And this was all solved, they thought, by the creation of the Federal Reserve, 1913, and our buddy, the first progressive president, Woodrow Wilson, signed it, of course. So what the Fed did to create this more elastic currency was to create the Federal Reserve note, but they did other things too. The Federal Reserve Act, under which they were created, created a kind of a system of reserve banks. There's currently 12. And the capital provided by the member commercial banks within each one of their territories, the 12 territories, the capital came from the commercial banks. They were required to purchase capital in their local, quote-unquote, reserve bank and become members of the system. But that also gave them access to loans and other services that were provided by the reserve bank. Supposedly, the private owners of the Federal Reserve, their shareholder rights, we'll call them, are very limited by the system's regulations. Now, uh, at the end of this, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story, and you can decide for yourself if that's not true or if it is. Because the Federal Reserve Act required the Fed's member banks to hold reserves, Federal Reserve notes, or deposit accounts with their local reserve bank, they, would, they could borrow against those reserves. And that was called the discount window. You've probably heard of it. So if a bank wanted to obtain funds because it needed liquidity, it would provide some of its own short-term, like commercial or agricultural loans, as collateral, and they could borrow. So the discount window became a mechanism for transforming illiquid bank loans into kind of quick cash and temporary cash, supposedly. And it began to build this concept, which we still have today, that the Federal Reserve is the lender of last resort. 
It also speeded up the payment system across the country because it made the processing of payments way faster. The reserve banks provided check-clearing services for all their member banks. And in fact, shortly after the Fed was established, they put in place an early, a primitive electronic system for making long-distance payments using the telegraph that was called FedWire. In the beginning, the Fed had nothing to do with quote-unquote monetary policy. It did require, this is pretty interesting, the reserve banks to maintain gold reserves equal to the specific percentages of their outstanding note and deposit liabilities. In other words, all the reserve banks, the 12 of them, whatever they were kind of holding at the time was backed by gold. This requirement originally was intended to limit the amount of currency and loans that the Federal Reserve Banks around the country could issue, and supposedly to serve as a break on inflation. You know, the more money there is, the less each dollar is worth. That's inflation. Later on, this would morph into kind of more broad macroeconomic goals, as you'll see. Price stability and maximum employment. That was called the dual mandate. But that was not codified, if you will, or regulated or put in writing until the 1970s. In the 1920s, the Fed began to adjust its discount rate. In other words, the amount of money would charge a bank when they sidled up to the window needed liquidity. And over the course of this evolution, the reserve banks discovered in the 20s that their purchases of U.S. government securities over and above their other activities had an influence, number one, on short-term interest rates and number two, on credit conditions. So if they were buying securities from the Treasury, that seemed to lower rates and it made credit more widely available. If they were selling those notes back to the Treasury, it had the opposite effect. You know, what we now call quantitative tightening and quantitative easing. The 1920s were called the Roaring Twenties for a reason. They rocked and rolled, and a lot of it had to do with the Fed. They purchased securities in 1924 and 1927, which revved up the engine, right? Put more money into the system. And back then, all the high mucky mucks were convinced that the Fed's apparent success in the 1920s, kind of playing with the wheels of monetary policy, it suggested that the new central bank, they could take care of anything. They could tame the business cycle. They could preserve price stability, they could create full employment, etc. Well, then came 1929, right? The Great Bust and the 1930s, which was the worst economic depression, basically the world over and certainly in the United States. After economic activity peaked in the summer of 1929, it plummeted. The stock market crashed in October of 1929. GDP fell 30%. Prices fell sharply. There was huge deflation. And the unemployment rate soared to about 25% by 1933. And as I told you last week, there's many economists and historians that kind of blame the Fed for the Great Depression because the Fed had a very limited response to any of the banking panics, and there were thousands of them over that time period, and to all these disrupting effects on the economy. But no big surprise, remember, you never let a crisis go to waste. And FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was a good old progressive boy back then. He seized upon the mess to grab more control for the feds because, you know, progressives like centralized big government. The Banking Acts of 1933 and 1935 basically shifted the power within the Federal Reserve System away from the regional banks, the 12 reserve banks, to Washington, D.C., the Federal Reserve Board, which was then called the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. You've heard of the FOMC? Well, that is the FOMC, folks. That's where it came from. 
And Congress, of course, looking for votes and getting harangued by uh, all their uh, constituents who were going broke, they had to jump into the act, too. (laughs) You know, trust Congress is screwed up anytime they touch it. So they gave Roosevelt the authority to revalue the dollar in terms of gold and to regulate the gold standard. I've told you about this. Go to my historical story on Franklin Delano Roosevelt or the history of money. Basically, he mandated everybody had to turn their gold in at a set rate. And once he had his little clutches on everybody's gold, well, he made a new value for gold, which basically whacked everybody by about 40%, $20 to $35. And he established what was called the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which was financed by this revaluation of gold. In other words, they created money out of your pocket from your gold for their use. I mean, just to make it nice and simple for you. And he gave the Treasury, which is an agency of the government and not some private institute out there like the Fed, just kind of operating under a set of rules, way more power. And the Treasury at that time began to manage the dollar. And by the mid-1930s, the Treasury had as much, certainly, and probably more power than the Fed to determine the United States monetary policy. He also established the Federal Deposit Insurance System. And the FDIC, as it was known and still known, was given supervision over all the insured state charter banks that didn't belong to the Federal Reserve. You know, the federal tentacles reach ever outward. The Fed retained its authority to supervise state member banks, while the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, Division of the Treasury, supervised the national banks. And then, of course, comes World War II. The U.S. economy was still recovering when we entered World War II in December 1941. Funny how wars always seem to follow recessions and depressions. Hmm. We'll have to keep that in mind here in the rest of the story. And during the course of the war, the Fed kept the yield, the interest rate paid on long-term U.S. government bonds at 2.5% or below. That was to stimulate spending. That was to stimulate, should we say, the creation of money to finance the war effort. And was also to make sure that the Treasury could borrow whatever it needed to borrow to win the war. But you know, for every action, there is always a reaction. And forgetting what they had learned, oh, 40 plus or minus years prior, the Fed's policy of preventing the yields, the interest rates on the government securities, from rising caused the nation's money supply to increase sharply. In other words, they were buying U.S. Treasuries to pump more money into the system. And between wartime spending, armed forces mobilization, all the manufacturing that was going on, that was full employment, rising household incomes, and alongside this expansionary fiscal policy, put huge upward pressure on prices. Let's talk about your family's safety. If you listen to this show, you know our aging power grid is more vulnerable than ever. There's been 70 physical attacks on grid stations and countless cyber attacks in the last year. Imagine a blackout lasting days, weeks, months. Look around your house. Water, refrigeration, heat, light would be poof. That's why having your own portable solar power and not relying on a government grid is critical. With a Patriot Power Sidekick from 4Patriots, you get a solar generator that's quick, easy, portable, on the go, or even inside. And though only the size of a lunchbox, it's powerful. It'll power your phones, your medical devices, even a mini-fridge. 
a free solar panel, free shipping, and a practically unheard of 365-day satisfaction guarantee. You can get 10% off your purchase using the code RIGHTSIDE at checkout. FORPATRIOTS.COM. Use the code RIGHTSIDE. Get 10% off. FORPATRIOTS.COM. Protect you. Protect your family. The Fed tried to keep inflation in check, but they did it exactly the wrong way. Exactly, by the way, as you hear the current administration beginning to talk about wage and price controls. When the war was over and the wage and price controls were removed in the summer of 1946, all that inflation, which had been suppressed, kind of bounced up like a huge spring. So now you had raging inflation, full employment. I mean, (laughs) just about everything that could feed off of itself to create this inflationary upward spiral working together. And the Fed and the Treasury got into a huge fight. The Treasury wanted to keep rates at 2.5% or below. You know, politics, the government. The Fed wanted to crank rates up to dampen down inflation. Inflation really took off in about 1950, as the Fed, listening to the Treasury, tried to keep interest rates from rising to market rates. It pumped more and more and more money into the economy. Eventually, the Fed and the Treasury kind of put down their swords and made a truce. And they reached an agreement in March of 1951. It was known as the Accord. That ended interest rate controls and it freed the Fed, finally, to use its monetary tools to control inflation. But not completely. The Fed continued to assist the Treasury by agreeing to try and limit interest rate moves when the Treasury was issuing new debt and to intervene, if needed, if the Treasury auctions were failing. In other words, the Fed would step in and buy the bonds that other people weren't buying. Harry Truman nominated a guy by the name of William McChesney Martin, Jr. to the Fed Board of Governors. Martin had negotiated the original accord agreement between the Treasury Department and the Fed. In fact, he represented the Treasury Department in those negotiations. He went on to be the Fed's longest-serving chair, and his allegiance was to the Fed, not to the Treasury. He served until 1970. The Eisenhower administration kind of took a laissez-faire deal. You guys do whatever you need to do. But the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations, they put a lot of pressure on the Fed to support faster economic growth, you know, buy those votes. And that meant lower interest rates, which meant another spring of inflation building. And along the way, inflation was spurred once again by the Korean War. In fact, the accord that was reached in March of 1951 was spurred by the Chinese entering that war and crossing the Yalu River which marked the boundary between China and Korea, with a confrontation, gee, think of this kind of rhymes with history, between China and the United States and the Soviet Union, who was at that time kind of had its wing over North Korea. Everybody thought World War III was coming. And with price controls dropped, people went on a spending spree. Commodity prices and purchases of consumer durables soared. But all along, The Fed was jumping up and down and committed to controlling inflation. That was really its focus. And, of course, stabilizing the banking system wherever needed as the lender of last resort. In fact, in 1951, the FOMC wrote a letter to the President, Truman, stating that, quote, inflation was caused by the excessive money creation forced by central bank monetization of government deficits, unquote. Anything come to mind here over the last, oh, I don't know, five or ten years since 2008? And that brought us into the period of the Great Inflation, as it was called. Beginning about the 1960s, the spring started to uncoil. U.S. inflation began to rise. It was really high. It was really volatile. It was that way all the way through the 70s. 
Inflation in certain goods, well, across the board, was 10 to 12 percent. In certain goods, rose 15, 20, 25 percent a year. In 1970, Martin, the head of the Fed, was replaced by a guy by the name of Arthur Burns. He worked out some kind of solution with the Nixon administration once again in the form of wage and price controls, even though history shows us they absolutely don't work, have the opposite effect. And then, of course, that fateful day, August 15, 1971, when Nixon took us off the gold standard. And that really opened the barn door of monetary stimulation. No longer was our money pegged to anything with a definite value. Burns, by the way, blamed very publicly inflation on budget deficits, the pricing power of firms and labor unions, sharply rising prices of oil, sharply rising prices of other commodities. Does this ring a bell, folks? This is 50 years ago. Any bells going off for you? In 1978, Miller, a guy by the name of William Miller, took over from Burns. He was, he was just in the, ch- in the seat, shall we say, as chief of the FOMC for a year. And then Jimmy Carter named him Treasury Secretary and nominated Paul Volcker, who was then president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, to be the next Fed chair. We all know what Volcker did. He had a lot of courage. He was absolutely focused on inflation. He didn't care about politics. He had one mission in life. That was to bring inflation down. And along the way, he rose interest rates again and again and again until finally they got up in the 21.5% range and 18% mortgages. Think about that. But all in all, the economy performed very poorly in the 70s. And there was a big recession from about 1980 to 1982, which kind of finally cleared the cobwebs, broke the back of inflation, and gave us a more solid footing for economic growth. But along the way, oh, our legislatures and our legislators, I mean, they just can't keep their fingers out of the pie, particularly a pie that they don't know anything about how to bake. So we had the Federal Reserve Reform Act of 1977, and that requires the Fed to direct its policies toward achieving maximum employment and price stability and report regularly to Congress. The Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. This was really the early ESG, folks. This was kind of the first woke big law. And basically it required banks to put a certain percentage of their loans and their capital in what the government described in its sole discretion as underserved and minority neighborhoods. And if banks didn't do it, they got spanked. It was the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977, which was spurred by Barney Frank and Maxine Waters, remember those two names, that led to the SNL debacle in the mid-70s through the mid-80s and the loss of 4,000 banks, many of them SNLs. Remember my banking story of last week? I talked to you about how the SNLs were deregulated. They could do more than just home loans. They could be investors. They could act like investment banks. All they had to do to get there was, you know, give out loans to people who didn't qualify in neighborhoods there shouldn't be loans. Then there was the Depository Institutions Deregulation and Monetary Control Act of 1980. That granted access to Federal Reserve loans and payment services to all banks. In other words, not just the banks that were members of the Fed, but non-members of the bank. It also required that the Fed begin to charge fees for the services that it provided to these banks. And finally... This act gave the Fed greater control over the growth of the nation's money supply because all the banks, you know, and stick and carrot, because all the banks, to have all their goodies given to them, had to be part of the the woke crowd, if you will, back then. Volcker's work and a combination of these acts, although they ended in disaster in a lot of ways, for a period of time, about 20 years, 
uh, resulted in a period that the Fed watchers call the Great Moderation. During this time, inflation was low. It was stable. There were fluctuations in economic activity, but they were, you know, they were pretty modest. I mean, there weren't huge spikes up and down, no bubbles like we have now. And in 1994, finally, banks were able to do branch banks and, should we say, break out of the tethers of their own state. And in February 1994, the FOMC began issuing a statement at the conclusion of each of its meetings. Think about the news today, right? Oh, the FOMC is meeting. They just met this past week. And they released the, meeting, uh, the minutes of their meetings within a few weeks after that. Preceding that was the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Improvement Act of 1991, and that was in response to all the SNLs and other banks that went under in the 80s. That act required the Fed and other bank regulators to take, quote, prompt corrective action when banks became financially weak. This is really important, and to resolve bank failures at the lowest cost to the insurance fund. Wait till we get to the rest of the story here. Then there was the Regal Neal Interstate Banking and Branching Efficiency Act, which allowed the banks and bank holding companies to operate branches across state lines, and the Graham Leach Bliley Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999. That was the act that repealed the old Glass-Steagall Act, which we talked about last week in the history of banking from 1933. And then in 2003, there was the check clearing for the 21st Century Act, and that's when electronic collection of checks started happening. You know, it was kind of the maybe intended, maybe unintended, who knows, the footings for the digital currency they want to foist on us now. Because this act eliminated the need to physically transport checks between banks. And it was sold because, quote unquote, it greatly increased speed and efficiency, unquote. The same thing you're hearing about digital Fed coin now, the federal digital coin. It's going to be so convenient for you. You can save so much time. The great moderation was slightly interrupted by the 2000 dot-com bust, but it really didn't end until the Great Recession, which was 2007-2008. And that was triggered, oh, listen to this, by losses on home mortgages and home mortgages, mortgage-related financial assets mortgage revenue bonds, etc., 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 which were dispersed out like poison pills in tranches of various credits to banks all around the world. And do you know where all that came from? Oh, yeah, the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. Our friends Barney Frank and Maxine Waters. Wait till we get to the rest of the story on those characters. With the financial system teetering in 2007-2008, the FOMC cut its target rate for federal funds... To zero. And they began to buy all these mortgage-backed securities. In other words, they began to pump massive amount of money into the economy called quantitative easing, or QE. Even with all that activity, and it was trillions. Do you remember the TARP program and all those things going on? Gross domestic product fell 4.5%. The unemployment rate doubled from under 5 to 10%. And there was a very slow recovery. And of course, here comes Congress again. Here comes Barney Frank again, this time in cahoots with Chris Dodd, a senator from Connecticut. Enter the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010. That called for banks to have more capital, better risk management, other rules for bank holding companies, really strict criteria for any firms that could threaten the stability of the U.S. financial system, and it gave the Fed more authority to scrutinize the activities of non-bank companies. The act established a new agency, the Financial Stability Oversight Council. You know, if there's a problem, just create another agency. The Fed chair is a member, 
And the job of that new agency was to monitor the financial system and identify any financial firms that posed systemic risk. By the way, that act also created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They're your friends. And then, of course, came COVID. And we all kind of know what happened there. The Democrats wanted to buy votes. COVID conjure was, as we are seeing every day now, more and more a complete fraud a bug that was basically non-lethal or less lethal than the flu that was developed with U.S. taxpayer monies in North Carolina and then financed at the Wuhan lab in China, a Red Army facility, which China was only too pleased to accommodate and then unleash on the world. Trillions of dollars were needlessly printed. Rates were needlessly kept low too long. I mean, a repeat of the same blunders of the past that we've just reviewed. And here we are in an inflationary spiral. And if you want to believe them that inflation's coming down, you go right ahead. Shadowstatistics.com. Check it out. But now for the rest of the story. As an interesting sidelight, another rest of the story. Remember our old friend Barney Frank, Maxine Waters? They did the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977, which resulted, yeah, give or take, 4,000 banks failing SNLs, the whole mess there, $500 billion cost to the taxpayer. And do you remember that Barney was also involved with the, the next follow-up act, you know, trying to fix the first mess he made, and that became a mess, and then he was involved in the third follow-up act? Well, you'll be delighted to know that Barney, it seems, was also a director on Silicon Valley Bank. And he was also a director on Signature Bank in New York, the two banks that the feds just took over. And you know what he was doing, besides getting paid millions of dollars for his directorship on these banks? He was lobbying for relaxed banking regulations. Rather interesting. But that's not the real rest of the story. The real rest of the story, folks, is that the Fed has stepped in, and the Fed has now bailed out all depositors over a quarter of a million dollars at these two banks. And it just so happens... That give or take 93% of all the deposits at these two banks are over $250,000. And it just so happens that all those folks are huge Democratic donors and include two media outlets, BuzzFeed and Vox, which owns a number of other left-wing media outfits, who are left-wing media darlings. Not to mention a bunch of left-wing venture capitalist firms. And there was a bunch of political bigwigs, Democrats, of course, also with deposits in excess of 250000 at the bank. Now, the government has tried to tell us that, in fact, Biden himself, that this is good for the little guy. This is good for jobs and the common man. Yeah, how many common people out there have more than a quarter of a million in the bank? Really? By the way, do you know who one of those Democratic bigwig politicos were? Gavin Newsom. That's right. The governor of California. Not only did he have buku cash in the bank, Silicon Valley, but his three wineries, his three vineyards had buku cash in the bank. And he was lobbying for it, which happens to be against California law, which prohibits anybody holding political office to lobby on anything in which he has a financial interest. Not that they care much about laws. But here's the real rest of the story. I mean, this is like a building crescendo of rest of the story. So Janet Yellen, oh, have you seen her? Wow. Janet Yellen, who was over giving $1.2 billion of our money to that creep that runs Ukraine a few weeks ago, she was testifying in the Senate subcommittee the other day. And in fact, the video of this is on the website under treason, under corruption, and under family safety. And she was asked by the Republican senator of Oklahoma if all the wealthy dudes and dudettes 
that had money at Silicon Valley and signature banks over 250000 which is the maximum coverage that the FDIC provides, if they all got bailed out, if they all got paid off, and we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, folks, well, could he expect that all the banks in Oklahoma, the rural banks, the little banks, the community banks, the small regional banks, were their depositors protected over 250000 too? And it's really telling when you watch the video. She kind of pauses, she flounders. She goes, well, well, we, we just don't know. It's a case-by-case basis, and the uh, Fed has to approve it, and the Treasury has to approve it, and, oh, yes, I have to approve it, and the president has to approve it. Oh, well, that doesn't that just warm your heart? I think you know what the real answer is to that question that was posed by the Republican senator from Oklahoma, don't you? But now here's the rest of the story, the fourth level of the rest of the story here. Did you know that to, in order to affect those over-legal bailouts, those over-legal limit, over $250,000 bailouts, the Federal Reserve created money. Remember our Federal Reserve story? Remember our banking story from last week? Our Federal Reserve story from today? Well, what happens? What does history tell us when you create money and you pump it into the system? Hmm. Inflation doesn't go down, folks. It doesn't go down. And that means that interest rates, which are strangling everybody, are of no consequence if money is being printed. And the Fed had to create about $380 billion and then give it some fancy new program name to bail out those two banks. That $380 billion is roughly one-third of all the money that they have taken out of the system trying to tame inflation for the last year. What do you think the outcome of this is going to be? And on top of that, as part of this special program, they have created, or they have promised to create if they have to, up to $2 trillion to cover, you know, any institution that President Cadaver and Janet Yellen and the other mucky mucks decide is too big to fail. $2 trillion. Where do you think that money's coming from, folks? And who do you think owes the debt to the Federal Reserve paper that they're holding? In other words, The securities that they created from thin air by printing money and then bought, basically, from ourselves or themselves. That's right. You and I. Oh, joy. Now let's talk about some rat-a-tat-tat. We'll stick on the banking and Fed theme for just a bit. Did you know that 70% of the American economy is consumer-driven? Not production, not manufacturing, consumer-driven. 80% of Americans right now are spending virtually their entire paycheck, if not their entire paycheck, just living from pay period to pay period. Now, you think about what's going to happen in the context of this new quantitative easing, which they're trying to disguise, at the same time jacking up interest rates, which hurts all the little guys, all the middlemen, all the small businesses. What do you think the result's going to be? On the international front, on the international monetary front, I should say, After all the sanctions which have done so much damage to the Western economies, Russian GDP is only down about 3%. The ruble is one of the strongest currencies on the planet right now. And Russia has way more gold stored than the United States, and together with China, infinitely more gold stored. And right now, Russia, despite all the sanctions, has a $250 billion foreign trade accounts surplus. (laughs) Take a look at ours. Hundreds of billions of underwater. And even with their expenditures on the Ukrainian debacle, they only have a 2.5% budget deficit per year. And best of all, depending on how and from where you look at it, not for us, Saudi Arabia is inches away from going with the yuan 
as the currency in which it's now going to trade oil. And just two days ago, at a meeting between Xi and Putin, Putin announced, with Xi's head bobbing in smiling agreement, that Russia would now be pricing all its currencies, or all its oil sales, in yuan. Anybody hear any competition coming down the track for the U.S. dollar, folks? By the way, at the federal level, Custodia Bank, which happens to be a Wyoming bank, a digital bank that's trying to get going, can't seem to get any approvals. Hmm, must be wrong state, wrong asset, and, you know, I'm sure maybe wrong political persuasion. And it seems also that there was a buyer lined up for Silicon Valley Bank before it went under. But it's not on what's now appeared to be a white paper of approved buyers of these banks. Hmm, I wonder what the criteria for those are. By the way, let me give you Janet Yellen's actual quote there sitting in front of the Senate. Quote, a bank only gets that treatment if a majority of the FDIC board, a supermajority of the Fed board, and I, in consultation with the president, determined that the failure to protect uninsured depositors would create systemic risk and significant economic and financial consequences. Unquote. And folks, if you don't think blue, ESG, etc., you are a systemic risk. Oh, remember I've been warning about the too big to fail banks, the CFE banks? Wells Fargo, our most corrupt bank in the country, back in the news. So in late 2022, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau made the bank pay more than $2 billion in consumer redress and another $1.7 billion penalty for unfair acts and practices. And then one of their high mucky mucks got sentenced in February of 2023 to 33 months in prison for laundering money for a Tijuana-based criminal organization. Can you spell cartel? Remember my story on cartels, folks? The history of the cartels a couple weeks ago on the rightsideradio.com. But now the new deal is is that folks are reporting money missing from their accounts. I'm not making this up. Either there's no money in the accounts or there's a wrong balance in the account. And the bank says, don't worry about it. Your money's safe. We'll take care of it. Okay. If you want to stay at those big banks, uh, you do so at your risk, folks. And that's enough about banking today, don't you think? I mean, it's tiring. So let's talk about ESG, right? The woke deal going on everywhere. So equity versus equality. Equality is something that Americans, black Americans, began fighting for in the 50s and 60s. You know, think uh, Martin Luther King, his immortal, I have a dream speech. Equity, though, folks, that's a different horse of a different color. In fact, Greg Gutfeld, his words also, equality is about peace. Equity is about war. I don't know if you know this, but this really began with Barry Obama. Yes, Barack Obama. He issued an executive order in August 2011, and this is his third term, you know. Establishing, quote, a coordinated government-wide initiative to address issues involving diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEIA. Gee, what have we been talking about here for a year in the military and everywhere else? But he targeted the federal workforce. And Biden, really Obama, Biden the front man, has expanded it. The Department of Defense, I've brought you these stories. They're now pushing diversity. If you want to get sick to your stomach, go online and look at their inaugural DEIA summit. And on February 18th, the DOT's Office for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion actually posted a clip on its Twitter account saying, and I quote, diversity is a strategic imperative, unquote, to operational readiness, no less. You can also get online, or we may try and have it on the website for you, the DOD's investment in its diversity program, their strategic plan for this. 
addressing diversity and inclusion. Through the end of September 2023, your tax dollars at work again, folks. And if you think this is helping us with Russia and China, wow. We're going to talk more about this next week. And now for a little COVID rat-a-tat-tat. you just got to be brought up to speed. So the 35-year-old mucky muck in Canada in charge of making sure the entire Canadian nation got vaxxed, he died. Suddenly, in his sleep, they have no idea what the cause is. Another guy, also a big vac pusher for the military, Dr. Harriet Skepdock Hall. In fact, he was an author of a science medicine blog. He, he died suddenly, too, in his sleep. They have no idea why. It seems that the Pfizer documents that the court ordered release that the FDA, our government, wanted to hide for 75 years, seems to reveal a depopulation plan. Hmm, or intent, or drift. We're going to talk way more about this next week. I have all sorts of stuff to share with you. These documents indicate that in the trial studies, listen to this, 90% of COVID-vaccinated pregnant women lost their baby. And there was another 270 pregnancies, and they have absolutely no idea what happened in 238 of those. They didn't track them. The 34 outcomes they tracked apparently by accident. 23 had spontaneous abortions. Others had premature baby death, intrauterine death, neonatal death, normal outcome, one person, one person, and outcome pending, five. It seems Germany's Minister of Health, Karl Lauterbach, is begging forgiveness. He's now admitted the video is on the website, COVID page, under the audio bar, on the right side, radio.com, to severe vaccine injuries occurring at a rate of, oh, less than 1 in 10,000 doses. It's actually, folks, way higher than that. Try 1 in 1,000. And that's doses that he admitted to, not people. The good German doctor even admitted, quote, there are severe disabilities and some of them will be permanent. We don't yet have the drugs for treating them, unquote. By the way, the real stats show serious injury in one of 100 people. And next week, we're going to talk about what it's done to fertility that is now coming out that they knew prior to getting everybody jabbed with this experimental drug. And let me draw some population lines for you next week. It's kind of scary. And over in England, it seems that Hancock, you know, the head cheese medical mucky muck in the English government, they were doing all sorts of things behind the scenes, like Fauci, but on a different level. In other words, concealing data to keep the lockdowns going. Concealing adverse outcomes to keep the jabs going. The Telegraph over there is all over this. The articles will be on the website, COVID page. Hancock, by the way, was also instrumental in school lockdowns over there. Oh, that's gone well. In Japan, everybody's up in arms. The government is finally about to reveal the huge number of vaccine injuries and excess deaths over in Japan. In the European Union, there's a parliament member. Stood up last week, Mislav Kolosevic, he's the Croatian member of the European Parliament. Let me give you his quote. Today we are witnessing the burning of billions of doses of COVID vaccines around the world because no one wants them. It will save the health and lives of many citizens, unquote. And tying into all this, let me remind you, the COVID litigation conference, very first one ever, which is a unique gathering of trial lawyers that are getting into this to protect your rights, get you money, Stop this nonsense. They are going to be focused on advancing COVID-19 related litigation of all sorts and forms. Lockdowns, emotional trauma, injury and death from the jabs, hospitals, you name it. And that's going on this coming weekend. Just type in your search bar, COVID Litigation Conference. 
hundreds of good attorneys out there waiting to help you folks. And now let's talk about our good buddies in the Netherlands, in Denmark. Remember I brought you the story, oh, it was three, four months ago, how the Dutch government, you know, woke and green, you know, climate change above all, were limiting emissions off of farms. All the farms over there are pretty small. And that they were actually putting together a fund to buy up to 12,000, and they were in the process of condemning and taking 3,000 farms away from people. Some of them have been in the family for generations. Well, it looks like the Dutch people have had about enough. The Farmer Citizen Movement, and I can't pronounce the Dutch name, but it's called the BBB, was originally established in 2019 when this nonsense started, revolving around nitrogen oxide and ammonia and all sorts of stuff. You know, basically, cow farts. How's that? You remember, and I brought you this story at the end of last year, huge riots, farmers blocking like every arterial street in the country with their tractors, etc. Big scuffles between farmers and police at The Hague. Well, last week, folks, the BBB shocked the country and Europe with a resounding win in provincial elections. Go BBB. The party won 15 Senate seats. That's 20% of the entire Dutch Senate. And that makes it just about the largest single cohesive bloc party in the Dutch Senate. Maybe the times are changing. We hope so. We're out of time again, folks. Lots more to come. Oh, quite a show for you next week. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Look in the mirror, repeat after me, and repeat it with conviction. Say it like you mean it. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do. And we will win. Keep the wind at your back. We'll talk to you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the right side.